Well, good morning, guys. It's good to see you. It's good to be back up here. Last time I, I had the privilege of preaching at Trailhead was back in August. And there's a reason for that. I'm, I'm typically in school most of the year. And so I do school during our fall and spring semester. And then I'm also working as our collegiate director. And as you guys probably know, the worship leader here at Trailhead. And so it's quite a joy and quite a privilege to have some time to do this and to be able to do this. And so I've been on staff with Trailhead for about uh, coming up on nine years this October. Um, you're probably wondering, where are you going to school at? I'm, I'm going to school. I'm currently in seminary at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, and I'm working towards my Master's of Divinity, and I hope to be done within the next year, actually. Next spring, I hope to graduate, and, uh, and then I'll finally be done with that four-year degree because that thing is beefy. Um, so I'm also entering the eldership process here at Trailhead Church. I'm going to be an elder candidate for the next two years. Um, normally that takes just one year, but they're giving me two because I'm going to be in school for this upcoming year. And so um, they're not going to put the full load on me yet. And the goal of that, the goal of entering into that process is really to send me out. You know, sometimes we raise up elders and, and the idea is to keep them in the local community. But sometimes we raise up elders and the goal is to actually send them out and that's going to be the goal for me is once I complete our eldership process here in 2021, uh, the goal is to, to send me out as a church planter. And, uh, and so we'll know more details as that kind of gets closer, but just kind of uh, FYI, that's, that's in the works and it's something that we're excited about. So yeah, between work and school and kids, we just added our, our third one, uh, little Mia Joy. I don't have a picture of her, but she's, she's tiny. She's four weeks old today, and, uh, which means we're tired. Mom and dad are pretty tired right now, uh, but it's good. It's been a lot of fun, and, and honestly, I'm just, I'm just thankful to be here. I'm thankful to, to stand here and t- excited, really, to see what the Lord has for us this morning. So as we're looking at the parable of the sower, I want to mention that we're actually going to be spending the next two weeks diving into this parable, and uh, I'll be back here again next week to finish it up. And so this morning, we're going to focus on the first soil. And some of you are thinking, wow, that seems kind of lopsided. Why not take two and two? Uh, I think you'll get it once, once we get into the text that there's a lot to uncover as we deal with the first soil and as we deal with Jesus's understanding of how he's using parables. And so we're going to explore that, kind of build a foundation there. And then next week, we'll look at soils two, three, and four and how they fit within that, that context. So let's go ahead and turn to Matthew 13. We're going to start with verse one. I'm just going to read. The, the parable itself. Okay, I'm just going to read the parable itself. So that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. The great crowds that gathered about him. So he got in a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some feet, seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. They withered away. But, when the sun, but other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up, and they choked them. Still yet, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's go ahead and pray this morning. Father, as we, uh, as we come to your word, uh, we know we need uh, your spirit, Lord, to illuminate it, to teach us, 
to soften our heart, Lord, that it might be able to receive your word. Lord, I pray for my own heart this morning to trust in you, to say nothing but what your word says. I pray for our friends who have gathered here this morning that they would be encouraged, edified, lifted up. I ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So before I was a collegiate director and worship leader, um, I was a teacher. And uh, it seems like everybody who preaches up here has been a teacher at some point. I mean, Steve and Aaron, uh, we were all English teachers, actually, at some point. And uh, I taught in Florissant, Missouri for two years at a Christian high school. And the first class that I ever taught was a freshman English class. And if you've ever been around freshmen, then you realize you're dealing with 14-year-olds, right? And if you've ever been around a group of 14-year-olds, then a few things kind of come up. One, listening is hard for all of them, but for a few 14-year-olds, listening is an impossible task. It doesn't matter how engaging you are. It doesn't matter how, you know, energetic you are. It's just other things are competing for their attention. For instance, it's 8 a.m. in the morning. Many of them are still waking up. They're still trying to figure out their day. They're still trying to figure out who you are. Uh, And second, you're teaching English. It's not most people's favorite subjects. So you're kind of competing against, you know, lunch, really, actually. I think that's everyone's favorite subject. And then you got the fact that there's the best friend who's sitting in the row next to them, and, and they're far more engaging than you'll ever be, even if you are entertaining. And so that's, that's the moment. But here's the thing. The, one, the other thing about 14-year-olds is they can selectively listen when they want to, right? Like if you mutter something under your breath, oh, they'll have it, and they'll have it for life. It's like, wait a second, how did you hear that? <laughs> I was in the other room. And that kind of selective listening is infuriating at times, but also, um, well, it can work in their benefit. So I'm teaching this English class, and the students are coming in class, and we're kind of sorting out the dynamics, right? This is my first year. I'm a first teacher, which means I don't know anything. And uh, I'm trying to figure out, you know, who are the non-talkative students that need to talk? Who are the talkative students that need to stop talking? That kind of thing. And over time, I began to learn my class. I began to understand how to best make them, you know, participate, get the most out of them. Two words, if you're ever in this situation, assigned seating. Just don't let them sit by their friends. That's the big thing. And about halfway through the school year, I had to take a conference. There was a conference down in Florida, um, actually with Dan and Steve, which meant I had to leave this class of freshman students in the hands of a substitute. Now think about this. Being a good teacher, I wanted to instill a reasonable amount of fear into the hearts of my students. Because when I look at this, 30 students versus one sub just doesn't seem like a fair match. It's just, something's off there. The sub doesn't have any uh, really kind of give with these students. There's there's nothing for them to, to follow unless they're listening to me and my instruction. And so I gave them a parable, effectively. I said there's two types of students. Those whose names will be written down on the sheet when I come back and those whose names are not. Two, two soils right there. And as any teacher knows, when you're, when you're giving this type of directive, you're really only eyeing the, those students whose capacity for chaos is the greatest, right? There's like 30 students, but five of them. If five of them are in control, you're okay. If five of them are out, it's going to be a little bit rough for that sub. And so I'm telling them this, and, you know, I had a good sense of who's going to listen. And I had a good sense of who was not going to listen. But in reality, I I couldn't know. In fact, I wouldn't know 
until I saw how they responded to my word. You know, until I saw how they responded to my word. Would they listen or would they not? And that's the tricky thing about hearing. You actually don't know what someone hears until you see the fruit of that hearing. You don't know if what they understand until you see how someone has responded to the word. And normally that takes time. I would have to go on my trip, I'll come back, and I'll find my list. Who heard, but who actually understood? And looking at our text this morning, as we're noticing these four soils, we're noticing four responses to Jesus' words. And what's interesting about these soils is that they all look the same in the beginning, right? I mean, there's seed, and that corresponds to hearing, and each of them have the seed. What makes the difference is how they respond to that. Do they hear or do they hear and understand? And so my contention this morning is like the soil in his parables and like the students when I left for Florida, each of us struggle at times to hear and understand, which begs the question, how do we hear Jesus' words this morning in a way that understands? Look with me in verse 18 as we examine Christ's response. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. I'll say that again. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. What does it mean to hear in a way that understands? So we're seeing Jesus, and he's speaking to his disciples, and and he's speaking of himself as the sower. He's the one sowing the word of the kingdom. And while potentially strange to us, imagery of God as sower and people as soils was actually quite common for the people of ancient Israel. Think about this. Israel, like all nations of that day, was an agrarian society. And as such, the harvest, that made up the major part of their trade and commerce. It's what provided food for people, food for livestock, jobs for the average worker, and extra food even for the sojourner. All it took was one bad harvest to one flood, one drought, and their entire economy could spiral out. So when when people spoke of God as the sower, this is actually conveying that he is sustainer over creation. Now catch this, when Jesus places himself as the sower, he too is making that assumption. That he is taking the role of God. He is assuming the sustaining power over creation. And this would have been no small thing to the Israelite. Jesus is making it clear. He sees himself as God. Which 
begs the question, then how, what kind of God and, and, and what kind of provision is he giving? How does he sow? In verse 19, it says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. You know, as we're making our way through these different types of soils, the, the one consistent thing we're noticing is that Jesus is just throwing the, so, the, the seed wherever. He's indiscriminate with his application of the seed. And while potentially wasteful to the modern reader, the practice of throwing seed was actually a common and acceptable form. It was known as broadcast sowing. And I think I got a picture of this on the slide here. You'll, I, I tried to find one with an ox, but you couldn't, I couldn't find it. The ground is not tilled yet. What would happen is they would throw seed, and then they would move an ox-drawn cart that was pulling plow, and that would till the ground. And so you would just cast your seed wherever it went. Now take a look at this guy. There's a road right there. There's a little beam right there. More than likely, seed got on the road, got on the path. Seed fell onto the beam. Maybe seed fell into the good soil. And so while this seems at first odd to us, here's the importance of this. Jesus is telling a life story that his audience would have not only experienced, but they would have understood. They would have seen that Jesus was placing himself in the role of God. They would have understood the practice of broadcast sowing. And this parable would have incorporated those familiar elements so that his audience would have understood this. And now we get to our first response. Now, as we've kind of dissected those pieces, we see what Jesus calls the the seed that fell among the path. And he says, this is the person who hears but does not understand. Leading to our first insight from the text, Jesus distinguishes between hearing and understanding. Jesus distinguishes between hearing and understanding. See, when Jesus is speaking of hearing and understanding, he's not primarily pointing to the act of listening. Right? He's not asking, are your ears open? Can you hear? He's pointing to the act of responding. How do you respond to his word? Now look at the first soil. We know the soil hears the word. How do we know? Look at verse 4. It reads, the seed fell among the path. That's to say it was given the word. All the soils are given the word. But how did it respond? Did it understand? And here's the distinction I think Jesus is making as we talk about hearing and understanding. Hearing is about the ears. Understanding is about the heart. Hearing is about the ears. And understanding is about the heart. You know, when I got home from Florida... Besides being a little bit more cautious about seafood, and that has entirely to do with Dan and Steve, uh, don't trust them, uh, I braced myself for the sub report because I knew something was probably going to be on it. And my kids are good kids. They, they were good, but, you know, it's, it's like saying they're good for 14-year-olds. It's like, yeah, they'll terrorize you. Like, they're, they're, they're good, <laughs> but it's the sub. So it's, it's admittedly not the highest compliment. So as I got in my class, I looked at my lesson plans, and I saw that there was some red ink and I was like, well, maybe it's just notes. And uh, as I got closer, it, it was names. Uh, it wasn't just notes. And I wasn't too surprised, but it's never a great feeling, knowing that you probably caused another sub to go into early retirement. You're like, yeah, I don't think they're coming back. But I, I, I started looking through my list, and, and I noticed that, you know, the, the names that were on there were some of the names I was ex- expecting, and there was a few names on there that I wasn't expecting. But to my surprise, some of the names that I thought would be on there weren't. 
I'll never forget one of the students in my class, just a young man that uh, really energetic, you know, got in trouble, but he was a good kid. One of those guys, he was just kind of more bored than anything. He came up to me, and he, and he had a smile on his face, and he said, I'm not on the list. You know, this is what a 14-year-old boy does, right? He's like, I'm not on the list. What do you think of that? And I said, you know, you're not on the list. And he looked at me and said, I was real good, Mr. Pacheco. And I was like, well, I need to work on your English. But yes, you, you, you did well. You did well. <laughs> it's a fail on me. And so I replied to him. I said, you know, let's, let's do that every day. And, uh, you know, all kidding aside, it was about the sweetest moment you're going to have with a, a teenage uh, boy, really. I mean, he was, he was just trying to, he was trying to be encouraged. And that moment stuck with me. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, if I was just looking out at who was hearing, more than likely this guy had his eyes all over the room. I mean, more than, I mean, he was, he was a mess. But he understood. And how do I know he understood? Because I saw how he, he responded to my word. I saw how he responded to my word. See, when Jesus makes this distinguish, is distinguishing between hearing and understanding, he, he's giving us a glimpse into how the world works. And he's showing us that we need understanding, not merely hearing. Okay, but now here's the question. What does it mean to understand? You know, it, what, is it, what does it look like? And how is Jesus using this? Look with me in verse 10. I think we're going to find our answer there. It says, The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? It's a good question. And Jesus answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So let's set the stage for this interaction. The crowd is gone, okay? And now Jesus is speaking with his disciples, and and they're finally getting a, a chance to ask all the questions they've had from listening to his parable. But Jesus' response in verse 11 is intriguing to say the least. He gives three insights. Each of them are profound. And he manages to say them in just one sentence. It's like, way to go, Jesus. You've killed it today. He states his disciples have been given. That's the first one. Knowledge of secrets. That's the second one. Kingdom of heaven. So let's unpack these phrases. And let's see if we can uncover what understanding is. To do this, let's begin by looking at that third phrase, kingdom of heaven. When Jesus uses this phrase, he's actually hearkening back to the language of John the Baptist. And that was used earlier in his ministry career. So let's go ahead and and turn back a few pages to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and look at how John is using this phrase. It's going to give us insight to how Jesus is using this phrase. Again, that's Matthew Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It's also on the screen for you as well. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, this is Matthew, is at hand. In the other synoptics, it says God. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. I'll read that again. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God of heaven is at hand. Now, focusing on that second verse, we see the word repent and the phrase kingdom of heaven. Looking at the definition of repent, we note that it means feelings of remorse, regret about one's wrongdoing. 
So to repent is to acknowledge or own a wrongdoing and then to turn from that wrongdoing. Shifting to the second part of that sentence, we spot the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> now, noting the, the work of several commentaries, it's accepted that kingdom in this, in this phrase is best understood as a kind of the ruling of versus like the realm of. Okay, so kingdom is best understood as the rule of versus the realm of. To say it differently, the expression kingdom of heaven is dynamic. There's movement to it. It's pointing to God's moving and ruling within the world. So you could say that the the kingdom is happening. So when John looks at Jesus, here's what he's seeing. He's seeing Jesus ushering in the kingdom of heaven. He's seeing Jesus bringing the rule of God back onto the earth, reclaiming what was lost, renewing what was broken, restoring what was lost when our first parents sinned in the garden. And this is why John is commanding them to repent and receive. There's no more need to continue the wait. There's no more need to continue looking for the one. Jesus is the one. He is the Messiah. He is the blessed and long-awaited one that the prophets have spoken of. So when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he's revealing its fullest meaning. The kingdom of heaven is here because Jesus is the son of God, the true son of the true God. And this is our second insight from the text. Understanding is faith in Jesus. That's what it means to understand. In reference to sowing the seed, the sowing of the seed, how does one hear and understand? They hear the message that Jesus is who he says he is, and they receive it by faith. And what do I mean by faith? I mean three things, knowledge, assent, and trust. That Jesus is the Son of God. I'll go through each of those. Knowledge is the, the knowing of. Okay, so you, you know that Jesus is, is who he says he is. And assent is to go a step further, and it's to say, I, I believe I, I, I trust, or I acknowledge, you know, I, I have agreement. But then that trust piece is the biggest piece, and that's where it's, 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 it's more than just head knowledge. It's heart acceptance. My hope is in him alone. To fall into dependence on Christ, to not come with our resume for God, but to trust in his finished work. That is what it means to have understanding. And that's what understanding and hearing looks like. Now, a quick apologetic moment. Some theologians say that Jesus never spoke of himself as the Son of God. And they'll say things like, well, he, he didn't really see himself as the Messiah. He didn't really, he's just a good guy. The problem is that that's not how Jesus responds when questioned by John the Baptist. Let's go ahead and look at Matthew 11, verse 2. Matthew 11, verse 2. We're keeping it all on Matthew. Honestly, we could go to any of the Gospels and read the same verses here. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? 
And this is Jesus' response. Go and tell John what you hear and see. It's a play on words there again, hearing and seeing. Not just, not just hearing, but knowing. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. This is Jesus' response. He's quoting Isaiah here, and he's revealing its fullest meaning. Jesus is the promised Messiah. How do you know? Lepers are being cleansed. Blind are be given sight. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the gospel's given to the poor. Jesus unequivocally understands himself as the Son of God. But did you catch what he said in verse 6? Did you see it? What happens when Jesus becomes the offense? How do you gain understanding? Look with me in verse 11 of Matthew 13. Verse 11 of Matthew 13. He answers them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Who's the them? It's the crowd. It's the Israelites. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention back to the first two phrases and we'll, we'll tie these uh, points together. We see given and we see knowledge of secrets. Let's look at the word given. The word given literally means to transfer the possession of something to someone, to hand it over. Christ is telling his disciples, the fact that you have knowledge is because I have given it to you. Which begs the question, what is the knowledge? Well, let's look at the word secret. In verse 11, this word carries several lexical meanings. One of those meanings is mystery, and I think the NASB actually uh, uses mystery when it's uh, translating this. In the Greek, this is pronounced mysterion, and what's interesting about this word mysterion is this is the only use of this word in the entire book of Matthew. Paul uses it something like 20 times within his epistles. It's the only use of it that we see within the book of Matthew. And as we uh, parse this word out, we're going to notice that it's a divine passive, and, and here's what that means for you. Divine, it's not gained by human achievement. Passive, it's a gift of God. So this word mysterion is not gained by human achievement and it is a gift of God. It cannot be earned. It must be given. And this leads to the final insight from our text. Jesus alone gives understanding. Jesus alone gives understanding. Understanding is not merited. Hence the word mysterion and its connection with given. Jesus gives the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, what is that? It's the truth of Jesus that he's ushering the God's rule back onto earth. And this mystery is that the truth of heaven can only be given. It's not merited. It's not done by being good enough. And gives, Jesus alone gives this understanding. Three profound insights. One sentence. But let's be honest, this is a hard saying. 
This is not an easy ask, and it certainly wasn't an easy ask for ancient Israel. And you may ask why. Why is Israel struggling so hard to see this? Weren't they looking for a Messiah? They were. Oh, yeah, they were. But the Messiah they were expecting was a political leader who would send the abuse of Romans fleeing. That's who they were waiting on. They thought their Messiah would establish Israel's regional power, the same power they, they experienced under King David. Most of them had no concept that their Messiah would be a suffering servant, that he would give his life as ransom, that he would die upon a Roman cross. What happens when Jesus becomes the offense? Look with me in verse 12. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that said, you will indeed hear and never understand. You will indeed see and never perceive. It's a difficult statement. What is Jesus getting at? He's getting at the result of what happens when he's taken with offense. In verse 13, we note the phrase, because seeing they do not see. And in one sense, what Jesus is saying is, certainly his opponents see him. But there's a a more meaningful sense in which they don't see him at all. And it's that sense that he's speaking to. When Jesus quotes Isaiah in verse 14, he's doing so as an indictment on their belief. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, the nation that had the prophets, the nation that was given the promises. But rather than faith, Jesus finds disbelief. And though there were certainly many in the crowd that that had things they appreciated about Jesus, you know, maybe even admired, they didn't trust him as Messiah. They didn't see him as the Son of God. Seeing they could not see and hearing they could not hear. But what does that mean? What does that mean to see and not see? So I thought about this for a long time and I couldn't come up with something perfect, but I think this might be helpful. Have you ever heard of a stereogram? Anybody? What about magic eye? Magic eye pictures? Okay, I'll put one up there. It's a little bit grainy and it's hard to see, but you, if you're looking at this, by the way, has anybody seen these stereograms? Am I the only one? Grew up in the 90s? Okay, come on. Come on. Here's what happens. is Some people can look at these and they'll see a 3D image that pops out. And there's a whole bunch of 2D background, but there's this 3D image. And if you're doing it right, you'll actually see a butterfly in there. I, I saw it yesterday, last night. I did. It's true. I saw it. And the way that you do this is you diverge your eyes in order to see the hidden three-dimensional image. Then the pattern sounds simple. It's either fun or frustrating. I don't know. Depends on how, how this works for you. I found them fun. I actually found it more frustrating last night because my eyes were hurting as I was trying to do this. But if you've ever wondered what seeing and not seeing feels like, try and be the person that looks at the image and you only see the 2D picture. You know, in the life and ministry of Jesus, the disciples looked at Jesus and they saw a Messiah. The crowd looked at Jesus and you know what they saw was a fish multiplier. 
a loaf creator. They saw a carpenter. They saw someone that could do really cool things. And so they didn't mind following him. But when Jesus shared the news that he was the Messiah, Israel, the very people you would think would have eyes to see it, rejected him. Rejected him. Jesus, the one who gives life, is now the offense. So where does that leave us today? How do we respond? You know, when you read through the parable at first, it, it almost seems like it's pointing us towards fruit inspection. Make sure you're growing. Make sure you're flourishing. The fourth soil is the soil you want to be. Do everything you need to do to be that soil. Or I've heard some even crazier sermons that are like, you know, the second and third soil aren't bad. They're just not great. I wouldn't go down that route. You know, I think there is a corrective within this parable, and I certainly think for, for soil two and three, but, but what did we just examine? It's Christ alone who gives understanding. And understanding is belief in him as the Son of God. There's an aspect of election within this parable. And at first glance, it might seem as though God simply chooses those that he wants to be saved and chooses those that he doesn't. And while I think discussing double predestination is intriguing, I I don't think this text is pointing to that issue. I mean, we note within this very text, Jesus is recognizing the freedom concerning how we respond. In verse 14 and 15, Jesus actually rewords Isaiah's prophecy. He moves it from the indicative, which is a command, into the simple prediction, implying, and this is what it means, that this is how you will act, and this is how God will respond. And even Matthew, he seems unwilling to relax this tension between divine sovereignty and human free will as it relates to God's accomplishments, which makes me ask and makes us ask, how do we best understand this tension? Now, if you turn to your bulletins, you'll find a memorable quote in there, several of them, I think, but the first one is the one I'm wanting to use right now. It's by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is great. He's not God, so you can disagree with him, but... I found this really helpful for understanding this tension. He states, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And I think that sums up what we see here. That in many respects, the hardening of Israel towards Jesus is a result of God saying, Thy will be done. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And you follow him for fish, but you don't trust him as Savior. So as we move to examine our own lives, I want you to do two things. The first thing, I want you to consider the claims of Christ this morning. Jesus gave this sermon among his disciples and those in the crowd. He was speaking to people that represented every soil. And we'll get into the other three next week. But he was, he's speaking to all of them. Some heard and received. Others heard and they were offended. But he informs his disciples, understanding is given. It's not earned. Resume and good things that we do doesn't earn it. And it's because merit has no part of Jesus because merit needs no part of Jesus. If you're doing it on your own, then you don't need a Savior. And that's actually the offense. That's the stumbling block. Will you repent of your self-salvation project? Will you receive Jesus as your only hope for salvation? 
I spent a lot of time on the campus of SIUE, and I, I can tell you right now, religion is alive and well. It's just not necessarily following Jesus. A lot of people are trying to be the best people they can be, defining the terms on their own merits. And they're pursuing life in that way. But you ask them a question of what is true. (laughs) Whatever is good, well, what is good? How do you get that? My goal here is not to make philosophical arguments, but to simply say that we're all, you can't get out of this. And it's our bent, it's our heart bent to try to be enough on our own. And so I invite you, if you find yourself offended by Jesus, I, you're in good company, a lot of people have been, but push into the offense. Don't allow apathy to gain the upper hand. And as you do so, remember that the foundation of understanding is faith in Christ. Faith is given, it's not something you, you trip over and figure out, it's a gift. And only Christ has the power to give that gift. Only he has the power to bring what was dead to life, to change what is hard soil to soft. And if you're in this room and you're considering these claims and you're kind of wrestling with this, I encourage you, don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. We have Connection Point, which is a place where you can kind of engage and get to know uh, the various ministries of of our church speak with one of the elders you can speak with me and and I'm not here to convince you there's no questions off limits there's no doubts that you can't express and I'll be honest with you most of the doubts that you'll express about this are doubts that our elders have had before in their own lives it's not as though we're coming into this without any questions and doubts ourselves but we pushed into them and we continue to push into them so I invite you today to ask the Lord for understanding and to come. Now, for those of you who have trusted in the finished work of Christ, I invite you to be a sower of the word. To be a sower of the word. See, when Christ gave this parable, he's heading to the cross, and he knew that his time on earth was going to be ending. But he still gave this example. And no doubt this parable would have played in the minds of his disciples as they continued to sow the seed long after his death and long after his resurrection. And certainly they understood their role to share the good news with as many as they could. In fact, we know that because most of them gave their lives in that pursuit. And while our lives may not be at stake, we too are called to sow the seed indiscriminately. As believers, we're all called. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky. (laughs) For some, the first step is simply going to be to pray. In fact, I would say for all, the first step is to pray. Where's the Lord placed you? Who is he placed within your sphere of influence? Who is he given as friendships that you can continue to have conversations with? The second step, I would say, is, is find others to partner with. You know, we have a lot of options here at Trailhead as far as partnering with existing ministries, anything from kids' ministry to collegiate ministry, and everything in between, there, there is avenues and opportunities to share the gospel, share the good news with people. But I invite you, to, please use the giftings the Lord has given you to share the good news with Jesus. And I get a lot of comments and questions on this. Well, how do you do, you know, do, you, do you drive by evangelism? We don't want to do that. And long term, it's like I've seen it all work and I've seen it all fail. There's students today that I've had conversations with for a year and a half. Young men that are 
committed atheists with whom I sit across the table from nearly every week. We built friendships with. I've seen others <laughs> who come to receive Jesus and it's like, where did you come from? It's like one time, one week. The Lord uses both. I think we get too caught up on these things. But here's my prayer. My prayer is that the church will continue to proclaim the good news of Christ, death and resurrection, both in this church and throughout this community. Let's pray. Lord, as we receive your word this morning, my hope is that you would give us understanding to not just hear with our ears, but to respond with our hearts. Lord, I I pray that you would use your word to grow, to sustain, to encourage. For those who are far away, for those who don't acknowledge you as Jesus, I pray that that they would come and ask their questions and push into their doubts and recognize that it's okay. You're not offended by these things. You're not distant. It's not as though certain things are off limits. And Lord, I pray that we would be a loving body to them, to walk faithfully with them, to friend them, not just for the the sake of, uh, of winning them over, but to friend them because they're made in your image, God. And I pray for those who have been in here and sat in here for a long time and, and know you as Savior, that, Lord, you use us to encourage those who've been faithful stewards of your word, or maybe to exhort those who who need to be. But Lord, that they wouldn't do it on their own. They do it in community, trusting in you. Lord, I ask that you would continue to use this church, Trailhead Church, to push out the good news of Jesus Christ into our homes, in our workspaces, and into our broader community. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.